You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 70 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have another legend of the game. It is Delmi Herriman. He re- recorded over 77 caps for his country and had more than a decade-long uh, professional career all over Europe and in the BBL, uh, winning championships in the process. And I want to do the show because he has a book. Uh, it's not new, but it is well worth a read. Uh, Mr. Versatility, I've got to give it a plug because I wanted to do this podcast after I'd read the book, which I've now read, and I can highly recommend it. So go check out his website, delmiherriman.com, and then you can buy a copy um, to get sweated up on some history of the game and obviously Delmi's career, which goes into everything we go into in this episode in a lot more detail. Um, and it's yeah, super interesting, super personal, uh, and I really enjoyed it. So I think you should definitely go and check it out. One thing worth mentioning is the internet quality was a little bit dodgy. The video feed, the audio was absolutely fine but the video on his end was a little bit pixelated throughout um so just bear that in mind uh, but stick with it it is well worth listen before we get into the show please take two seconds to go and check out our patreon account patreon.com forward slash hoops fix p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash h-o-o-p-s-f-i-x there you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you like to help us do the work that we're doing we cannot do it without your support please go and check it out patreon.com forward slash hoops fix as always, uh, hit me up on my email address, sam at hoopsfix.com, if you've got any feedback, or you can reach me on every single social media platform at Hoopsfix. Anyway, that's enough from me. Here is this week's show with Delmi Herriman. Delmi, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Sam. So, I've uh, wanted to do this for a long time, um, but I didn't want to do it until I read your book. Uh, as I said to you, like I, I felt like it would be a miss for me to not have done the, the research and kind of have the context to everything, um, which I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, so, we're going to give it a plug on the show and, and recommend that everyone uh, go out and, and read it. And I think that everything that we're about to get into over the next 60 to 90 minutes is covered in a lot more detail um, in the book, which is available on your website which I'll put a link to in the description so people can go and uh, and check it out for themselves. But I always start uh, these podcasts by going right back to the beginning um, and finding out what it was that got you into basketball, uh, what made you first pick up a ball, and how you kind of first uh, fell in love with the game. So let's start from there. I'd say it was um, watching FSL Vikings um, in Warrington, uh, probably mid-80s. It was like when Will Brown, Jeff Jones was playing for the team. And then my brother uh, started playing basketball for Manchester United um, under 15s. So just going along with him, uh, that that's how I fell in love with the game. And kind of, you know, you you sort of detailed it in the book that you know you were you were going to session seeing him. And at that point, you were obviously there wasn't an under 13s team, right? And there was a kind of discussion about whether or not uh, the club Manchester United could set up an under 13 team, so you were able to play. Is that is that right? Yeah, because there was only a couple of players. Um, so my dad had approached the coach and just said, look, you know, that there's only like four or five players, but uh, can we start another 13s team? So then after a few months, uh, they decided they had enough players to start one. And that we hear, like when we we sort of talk about the history of the game here, we hear that um, Manchester United used to have a, a basketball team and it was kind of, it was linked to the football club, right? Like what kind of, what was your memory of, of that club sort of set up uh, back then? It was really good. Um, like I said, uh, the football club sponsored um, the basketball team. Um, Sharp Manchester United, um, they used to play um, at the 
Stratford Sports Centre. We used to go there, watch the games. It was just unbelievable. The competition was just brilliant. Well, why did it, Do you know why it ended up coming to an end? Why that partnership sort of stopped? I really don't know. I think it stopped um, when I went to the States, so I'm not sure exactly what happened. Yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of dig up all that stuff and, and, and sort of find out. So so your own journey, you know, you started out at Manchester. Um, what were kind of like your, your early memories of those sessions uh, of basketball in the area, of kind of like what it was that was inspiring you to, you know, start to take the game more seriously? Um, we had a really good team. Um, um, I remember playing with Sean Mackay. He was a dominant point guard at that time, um, playing up a few levels. Um, you had Danny Craven just starting out. Um, Yorick Williams, a few younger than me. Um, we, we just had a really good team, really good team. And then the junior team with like um, Pluto Verlutis and Chris King and all those guys, they was like, you know, national champions and things. So it was just a really good setup. Did you feel like you had a natural ability for basketball? Or was it something that you had to work for at that beginning? Um, I'd say I had to work for it. I, I had the natural love and passion. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't quite coordinated. I was a little bit slow. I was really skinny. So all those things had just developed over time. And the kind of, the, the narrative is that, you know, ultimately you ended up realising that you know, the States is the place that you want to get to. That is where uh, you can kind of achieve all your basketball dreams and, and, and pursue your goals. How did the States become on your radar? Like, how did it become a thing in your consciousness of, of recognising that that's where you want to get to and, and that's where you want to take yourself? I would say two things. One was going on uh, Leeds basketball camp uh, that Dave Smith used to run. Going to those camps and meeting American coaches um, and then talking about the game and things like that. That was the first thing. The second thing was probably um, watching college basketball, like um, watching like Steve Butner playing at North Carolina, uh, Carl Brown at Georgia Tech. I don't know. I think I got sent the videotapes or something. Um, but watching that, that that just you know that just set it off there. I just I just had to go and try and follow their footsteps. Yeah, I was going to say like you know in in that area like to be able to to, to actually watch college basketball like. I mean, in England, it must have been relatively difficult. Um, so what, what was it a case of, uh, you know, other players or coaches getting hold of VHS tapes from somewhere, whether it was sent back yeah. from the States and then kind of you would then be able yeah. to, to watch it? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. Um, it was coaches that I befriended from the camp. Uh, they would like send games over, you know, NCAA games. Um, that was generally it, I think, because Channel 4 was more like the BBL. It wasn't so much college basketball. Um, but it was yeah, those those tapes were like gold dust. You couldn't just go on YouTube like you can now and just watch games. So you know, just waiting for that VCR tape to come through the door, sticking in the, the VCR and just watching it. Yeah. Was there amongst you and your peers? Was there like a lot of awareness about you know you you mentioned this um, Steve Bucknell and Carl Brown, kind of like not just them but other British guys that were that were performing uh, and doing well that kind of you guys were looking up to, um, whether it be in the States or or in Europe or even domestically? I kind of want to say because of my age, that the level of players above me was the Bucknalls, the Carl Browns, because even Amici, he started after me. So before the Bucknalls and things, you know, never lost in Robin, Ro, Roger Huggins. I don't think there was, I don't really know of the people above them. 
so I wasn't watching those people. I know there is some people, uh, maybe like Clyde Vaughan and different people, but um, to me it was that generation because they're, they're, you know, maybe six years older than me or whatever. So they were the generation above above us that we was looking at in, in the states. What do you remember? You know, watching tapes of of uh, you know whether it's Bucknell at UNC or, or Carl Brown at uh, Georgia Tech. Like, kind of what, what are your what are those memories that you have of, of seeing them? Uh, you know, on the on the college stage. Well, obviously, well, both of them played such big time basketball. Like you know, Buck at Carolina. You know, that's where Jordan played and Worthy and everyone else you, you couldn't get a bigger stage you know watching them games against duke and everything else you just cannot get a bigger stage than that then obviously carl brown um you know playing at georgia tech going to the final four playing with kenny anderson um it was unbelievable it was just like it was stuff for um, dreams are made of how how do you think you know obviously now we're in a, we're in a space where every year you know on Hoops Fix, we'll publish a list of all the British basketball players that are in the US college system. It's getting pretty lengthy. There's a lot of guys that are obviously doing mm. doing great. And, and for the younger players that are coming through, um, it's a lot more accessible, right? They can they can watch highlights on YouTube, as you were saying. Yeah. They can access full mm. games if they want to on the ESPN player or wherever. Uh, kind of how, how do you think it differs? Do you feel like the younger generation coming through are looking to those guys still in the States as their sort of inspirational role models and then using it as something to drive them to try and get to the same place. How would you compare kind of like the two eras? Um, you mean my era and their era? Yeah, like how it was how it was back in back in your day when you'd look at, you know, uh US college athletes, yeah. British US college athletes, um yeah. compared to now. I'd say there wasn't really a pathway to, to get to the States, to get from A to B in my generation. There there wasn't a pathway. You couldn't just upload your video on YouTube or send it to an agent and, and, you know, get recruited. It was practically impossible to get there. There was only a handful of people, I would say, in the States when, when I was 14, 15, 16, maybe five. Now you say you, the list is lengthy, very, very lengthy. You know, there's, what, 100, 200, 300 people. Um, but back then, I'm sure it was less than 10. So there just wasn't a pathway. Do you think that's good for the game? Like the more with more players in the U.S. college system, which means good for the yeah, British game. Because it, yeah, definitely because it, it shows how much the game's progressed. Yeah, it, definitely, it, it's unbelievable how many guys. If you look back then, how many guys were playing D1, and look now, how many guys are playing D1? It's probably a ninety-five percent increase. Yeah, which is definitely good. It shows how far the game's come. Do you think we would ever... There's been a lot of debate recently. I, I don't know, a few months ago, we did a, a BBI Owners podcast and um, there was a whole conversation about, you know, whether if you want to be a pro, whether the best option is to go to the States compared to, you know, staying staying in the UK and, and, and signing with BBL Club for four years and, and playing as a pro for, the, for that period of time instead. And I think that there's also an argument... Well, I think one of the reasons the game struggles in this country is all of our best players leave as soon as they can right they, whether it's going to the states or you know going to europe and and then as a result you get whatever you want to call it a brain drain or, or whatever that that then the mm. domestic game suffers because then you don't have those players playing at home um i'll be interested what's your kind of take on that whole situation you know do you think that having so many players leaving does it negatively affect the game here or do you think that actually them playing at the highest level possible for themselves is has a positive impact because they'll improve more than potentially they might hear, and then when they do come back, they're of a higher level, which will help grow and raise the game here. 
Yeah, definitely. I think you know, there's a few different pathways, isn't there? Like you said, um, staying here, um, going to like academies, playing in the BBL, or another pathway going to Europe, like Devin Van Oostrum, people like that. Um, Miles Hessen, somebody that stayed here and then done very well um, over there, all going to the States. Um, all good options, all good options. My preference is 100% the States. Unless you go to a, a big club in Europe and you're in the academy and come up, my preference would be the States because it's not just the basketball, which is top-notch. It, it's the social aspect as well. Like those years of college, you know, on and off the court, you're just never going to get that back. Even playing in front of all those people. I played, you know, a long time professionally and I don't think we ever played in any type of atmosphere that was like in college. Um, but it also is important to go to the right college and be lucky enough to go find yourself in the right situation because a lot of guys go there and don't play, end up coming home. Um, so it's not just go over there anywhere. You have to be really fortunate where you go. Yeah, 100%. So you, your journey to... You started going to high school, right? It was before you didn't you didn't go straight in straight to college. You ended up at high school. That move to high school actually came about through the Rotary organization, right? Yeah, it, it came about indirectly through going to the basketball camps um, that I mentioned before. Uh, my brother winning uh, an MVP at the camp, my older brother, and through him going to camps at CW Post and Villanova, uh, he befriended a college coach, and that's how we got the link for me to go over there. But yes, it was through the Rotary Club. The Rotary Club sponsored me as an international exchange student. And what, what explain for people that haven't heard of the Rotary Club, like what is it? How does it work? An exchange student. So the Rotary Club, uh, every town basically has a Rotary Club. Um, it's all businessmen that kind of own all businesses within the town. Uh, they meet once a week, um, do charitable events and things. And as an international exchange student, uh, you go over to America, you stay with uh, two or three host families for the year. Uh, you have obligations. You have to go to these meetings every week um, through the Rotary Club. And then also somebody comes over and stays with your family um, and you host them all free of charge. Um, but it's just for experience. It, it, it's just for experience of another culture, another country. So it wasn't actually like... it. <laughs> It was almost like you had to sell it on the experience as opposed to you were doing it for the basketball, right? Yeah, definitely. Because through red tape and things, you were, you wasn't allowed to go over there just for basketball. That was kind of illegal. <laughs> you you couldn't do, yeah you couldn't do it. <laughs> and so, you so do it. it had to be under that that guy's. And so when you so when even so even though so how did it work with the coach? The coach coach basically did the coach that you met through the, the camps or whatever kind of to, said to this my is brother, yeah. yeah so this is a potential option like you could look into the rotary yeah. club and then you had to then go through the process of like yeah. applying find did you find a high school that was local to a specific area or were you open to going to wherever i, I was open to going to wherever um, i was supposed to go the year before so that would have been my junior year um, but that fell through because of the red tape i talked about it you just wasn't allowed to go over there and just say i wanted to play basketball so after it fell through the first year, um, we found out, you know, you could do it through uh, the Rotary Club as an international exchange student. Um, so then we had to go through all that process. Um, and I knew the, the school I was going to because it was the, the, the coach was a friend of my brother's. So um, I, I knew where it was. It was it was in um, Ohio, uh, not not far from Akron, Ohio. When you realized that that dream of getting to the States, you know, that first step, 
going to high school was was a reality uh, or about to become a reality kind of what was your thought process your mindset um kind of going into that like how did it make you feel or are your expectations sort of going into it well it, it was a dream that i'd had for about three or four years maybe longer i left at 17 just turned 17 i've been dreaming about it since i was about 12 and when it finally became reality the only way i can describe it is, is like when you're a child about nine years old and on christmas eve and you're just that excited um, you can't sleep because you know you're excited for christmas morning that was the feeling. I just wanted to get to the States. And once I got there, then I'll, I'll, I'll try and make it happen. But I just had to get there. And were you already, so were you already linked with the high school that you ended up going to? Were you, did you already have that link and you knew that you were going to be playing for their team? Yeah, yeah. So because my brother was friends with the, with the head coach, yeah. um, I, knew which, I knew exactly which school I was going to. So he would be liaising with me over the year. Um, sending me pictures, you know, you know, sending me the media guide, um, telling me all about the team, telling me who my host family was going to be, um, so I could research the area and things. So yeah, I knew I knew exactly where I was going in a really small town, <laughs> East Central Ohio. And then touching down, touching down in the states, kind of what were your first sort of early memories um, of getting to the US, the cultural differences, um, how you felt you made the transition, whether or not you missed home, like those first few months, I guess, uh, how were they for you? Well, my first experience was spending a week at University of Tennessee because I went to University of Tennessee because I knew the assistant coach. So I went there before I even went to where I was supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And that was the week that I'd, I met Alan Houston. Um, and became really good friends with him. So that that was my first experience that week. So that that was just unbelievable. You know, being at a Division One um, university, you know, twenty five thousand seat arena, hundred thousand seat football arena. So that was my first experience, and that was just blown away. Then after that, I went to um, high school, and then pretty much it was just straight into the training. Um, it was a small town, small school, so it wasn't so much of a culture shock. And um, we're just getting straight into practice and training. And the games, it just came straight away, really. When you speak about your own ability and how you were matching up on the court, did you feel, uh, was there any part of you, like our practices and stuff, that felt that you are out of your depth? Or did you feel like you made that transition pretty smoothly and it was relatively easy? Uh, to tell you the truth, um, I was a late developer, so I was about 6'3", really skinny. Um, um, within three months with all the meals you get over there, the pancakes and everything else, I, I put on about 20 pounds and I grew three inches within three months. So I went six, six, I, um, I could jump finally now. And I, I got a lot quicker because we was doing weight training every day and athletics and everything. So to be fair, I really progressed really quick, really yeah. quickly. Yeah. You see a lot, uh, guys going to the States, and within a few months, put on weight very quickly because I think just the portion sizes and the frequency of meals, and then obviously also like training, like weight training, which I think is you know, especially back then, I think in the UK we probably take it a lot more serious than, than we used to. But um, but back then it was something that was always part of American culture, but but has has not been not been so much so much here, you know. Um, and then kind of like off the court, like how, how did you find that? Like you said, it's, it's a very small town. I guess for, for context, and you obviously you did speak about this 
a lot in the book but i think it'd be interesting to kind of give people your, your own background um you know growing up where you grew up how do you even pronounce it is witness <laughs> witness 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 yeah rugby town rugby town rugby town uh yeah it's like you're yeah, going yeah go on yeah it, it's um big rugby town rugby league uh, it's like um 10 15 minutes from liverpool 25 30 minutes away from manchester um about 100,000 people so so not really that small um and then i was going to a town which was really small in the states very small town when you say small how small are we talking um i might guess and say maybe 8,000 people 10,000 people oh, wow. 1,000 people in the high school just one high school Wow. Yeah, is that a split between two towns? Yeah. Um, maybe. I could be wrong on the facts there. I'd have to fact check that, but it's very small. Yeah. Very small town. Two twin towns. Yeah, so it's a super small town. And, uh, you know, the other thing which you speak about a lot um, uh, in, in the book is, of course, is of course race, like being, being mixed race, going up in witness, which is predominantly white. And then, of course, going to. Um, uh, what, what was the name of the town that you, went, the, that you moved to in, in the States? Uh, Eurexville. 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 And it was a very similar yeah. story, right? Predominantly white as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, just a, small, a lot smaller version. A lot smaller version. Yeah. How did you feel your race played into um, kind of the situations that you were in uh, high school playing basketball? Like, of course, there were some pretty crazy things that happened. Like, I'd, I'd be interested to kind of hear your perspective um, and how you felt going into. Uh, a predominantly white environment, which obviously you'd been in England, but then to go in the States, like whether it was much different to England or whether it was a, a, a similar type of thing, like kind of, yeah, I'd be interested to hear kind of your take on, on, on the two environments and how they differed or compared. Yeah. So even though I grew up in Witness, I played basketball in Manchester since I was about 12 in, in Moss side and all my friends were from there. They was all on the team. So I was around a lot of black people and all of my team was predominantly black. Um, but, but obviously going over to the town in the States, um, there, there was only like two other black people on the team, um, about nine black people in the school. Um, so it was very different. Um, all the people were great. You know, at first, everyone's friendly, um, but it, it was only later on where certain things started to happen uh, where you could tell that, you know, wow, you know, it, it, it was more racist than England. I, I, I definitely felt that at the time. What caused the change? Like, like you said, you were kind of welcome to begin with, and then you know, was it a case of the su success that you were having, and then there was sort of jealousy, uh, or like what in your mind, what was it that that, that caused that uh, that change? I would just say um, a few bad apples, really, just a few bad apples, um, and also things like. One thing, like like I mentioned in the book, was that I know it's different. Was was um, um, dating different races that that wasn't seen uh, that that wasn't really allowed. It was made quite clear that's not really allowed. You know, that's not really what goes on around here. And um, so that kind of shocked me really because you don't really see that so much in England. Um, but uh, that that was the main thing on the line tone of yeah, you, you don't really date outside your race over here. When you know, this stuff was was becoming apparent to you. Was there any part of you that made you think, you know, forget this, like, 
I want to go back to England? Uh, or was it very much a case of, you know, well, I'm 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 chasing my dreams. I still want to make the NBA and do all these great things within basketball, and I'm doing that regardless of what you say or whatever you do. Oh yeah, I I, I was just looking forward to getting to a bigger city. You know, after after high school, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I want to go to a bigger city, you know, a little bit more culture. Um, but no, there was no way I thought about coming home, not not for a second. I was going to, you know, make my dreams happen. So, and then on on the court, uh, your time at high school, like, what are your sort of biggest memories that stand out, um, and I guess the sort of key performances. If if any key moments, um, and then at what point did did the the colleges come knocking? Um, luckily, you know my high school coach, a really good friend of mine. He he was great because even in the preseason, he he had a lot of obviously college coaches friends. Um, so he would bring them down in the preseason to um, all these inter squad scrimmages. He had you know friends at Villanova, Cincinnati, um, Northern Iowa. So these coaches would come down in the preseason and watch me play. Then uh, so. Right from the start, I was a little bit on the radar. Um, high school, the games went really well. My first game, luckily, I had a really good game, my very first game. The first basket of the season was a dunk, and I think I finished with, like, 20 points, 10 rebounds in the very first game. So, you know, because it was a little bit nerve-wracking going in. You know, there's, like, a 1,000 people there. You know, we're not used to playing in front of that like under-17 level, under-18 level. So it was good that I didn't fall flat on my face in the first game. And from then, it kind of, you know, it went well for the rest of the season. Did you feel like high school basketball was what you expected it to be? Yeah, I would say I'm more. You know, even things like the pep rallies, you know, the whole school gets involved, the whole town gets involved. You know, it's on TV, it's in the newspaper. Um, it, it's just unbelievable. You know, it was probably bigger than I expected. And, and we was, you know, like a small school, even though, you know, we had like a, 1100 seat arena but that's small you know um so you know we played in front of two and a half thousand people sometimes um but yeah it, it was unbelievable and I, I knew i knew it was a small it was a small area so i knew it was way bigger in indiana and other places what do you think the key things were that uh contributed to your own skill development and development of your own basketball iq game uh over those years um, the first year, um, just the intensity and the level of competition uh, in high school. Obviously, going to college is like a whole nother, a whole nother thing. Going to D1 college um, and the level of players at college, um, playing against them every day, and, and you know just not letting up. They're trying to beat up the freshmen, and you play and pick up ball and everything. It's just like you know the upperclassmen don't give you any love. So it's just like, you know, <laughs> you better get with the program or, or, or go home. So, yeah. Did you find there was a big difference in, in the mentality between American players and, and English players? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's life or death for some of them. You know, you've got guys in college, you know, they're from the hood. You know, their friends have been shot, killed. Friends, drug dealers, um, trying to escape gangs, everything else. So, and they're they're out of state, life or death, really. Because if they go home, you know, they're getting phone calls like, "Oh, this happened, that happened." So, you just see the seriousness of it, and and you know, also how hard they play and how seriously they take the game. So, so that was just you saw that that was evident straight away. 
really with the majority of players. So what was your recruiting process like uh, for college? Like, when, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, you kind of, you ended up knowing where you wanted to go pretty early, uh, early on in the process. But yeah, like, can you kind of recap which schools were interested, how you made the decision that you made um, and how it all sort of played out? Um, so I had a few schools interested early, uh, maybe like Niagara, Canisius College, um, a lot of schools around like that East Coast area. Um, but because we finished, we got knocked out um, in the high school tournament, we got knocked out prematurely in the, in the first round or quarterfinals or something. Um, so we didn't progress all the way to the state. So we didn't get um, as exposure, much exposure as we wanted. Um, so it kind of dipped down a little bit then. Um, my recruiting and it wasn't until uh, at the end of the season when we had an all-star game um, after the season finished that um, that that's when I got recruited that's when I got sold by Wright State who actually was there looking at a guy on the other team and they just saw me because I was on the radio I didn't go on any five-star camps AAU uh, anything like that so I was quite under the radar yeah, that's I'd right. Only been so there maybe it, six months. Yeah. It was almost looking like at the end of that season, you didn't have any offers. You didn't. You potentially weren't going to go to college, and then it happened that there was this All Star game, in which you ended up putting on a bit of a show, and from there, that is ultimately what was that? Was that after your senior year? That yeah, I was I was only there for one year, so that was at the end of the the, the season. There was um, an All Star game at the end of the season. Okay, what did yeah. you fi- what did you finish uh, with in that All Star game? Um, I think it was just like 15 points, eight rebounds or something. But it was like a dunk contest at halftime where they caught the coach's eye and and just playing the point a little bit and dribbling, coming down and shooting some threes, hitting some threes and just a few things that maybe they'd not seen me do earlier on. Um, I probably had a few offers. I think it was like um, Akron and uh, Kent State and and Niagara and Canisius maybe had those four before. Uh, but then Wright State came along, which was like a, a bigger school, um, out of the blue, really. So it was amazing. Was it just the fact that it was a bigger school? Like, what made you want to go to Wright State over the others that were interested in you? I went on a visit. Um, they flew me down there, uh, literally like the next week. And when I walked into the arena, it's called Urban J Nutter Center, um, eleven thousand seat arena, state of the art. And when I saw that, even now today, it's state of the art. Um, but back then, it was, what was that? 20, 30 years ago, whatever it was, it was a beautiful building, like absolutely unbelievable. When I saw that arena, looking down, I said, "This is where I want to play." And, and then it. also they, had, yeah, they also had um, a very good player called Bill Edwards. Bill Edwards was potentially NBA player. Uh, he was going to be a junior and there was going to be a lot of interest, a lot of NBA scouts going to the games. Uh, they wanted me to kind of replace him after he left because we were similar positions. Uh, so all that really, in a nutshell, I was like, yeah, that's for me. So then I signed then. And then you, your first year, you ended up redshirting, right? What was the thought process that went into that? Was that partly because of the fact that Edwards was there? He was in your position, so you would get another year uh, to play when obviously you wouldn't be playing behind him. Exactly the reason, um, and I was still really skinny. So one of the coaches said, um, well, kind of a compliment in a way. One of the coaches from Northern Iowa, I think it was Eldon Miller, said, "If I was a stone heavier, every um, 
every college in the country would recruit me. Um, but I was just a little bit too light. <laughs> I mean, I was a, to, still a little bit too skinny for that level, for top, top, top yeah. level D1. So I redshirted to put on some more weight. And because that was, was you know, only going to be a junior, I believe, at, at that time. That that process to, to put on weight, just out of interest, because, you know, there's a, there are plenty of, plenty of young kids that are... Uh, you know, have very high metabolism and are unable to or struggle to put on weight, put on muscle. Like, what was what was the process like? Uh, you know, how was it approached with you and I guess the strength and conditioning coach, if if that, if if that who 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 if that's who it was that was overseeing it. Um, and what, if any, when you're talking about the weight that you were able to put on over the course of that um, that redshirt year, what what did you what were you able to achieve? To be fair, I don't think it was a lot. <laughs> If I'm honest, I'm one of the people with the high metabolism, 5% body fat. I've only put on weight since I retired. So um, I just really couldn't put on weight. It was more mm-hmm. like learning the game, uh, getting experience, you know, the, the speed of the game. Uh, obviously, I got stronger. Lifting weights got stronger. But I was definitely one of them guys um, that really couldn't put on weight. Just getting stronger, but you wouldn't really see a lot. Um, I'm not sure how I may be put on 10 pounds, maybe, but it wasn't really something majorly significant. Yeah, it was more just learning the game and then things like that. Do you feel like like how how do you think you benefited from that year? Uh, you know, you talk about learning the game. Like how how is it without actually playing competitively in the in the the season games in the in the in the actual competitive games? How do you approach it differently to ensure that whatever it is that you're learning will definitely be transferable? You know, when you do get onto in, onto the court into game situations, it takes a lot of pressure off you. It takes a lot of pressure off you because you know that you know you're competing in practice every single day. Uh, you're watching the games. You know, you're there sat on the bench. You're watching people's mistakes. You're watching, um, you know, everything that you think you know you know you should do and you could do. Um, it is it's i would advise anybody to do it really if if they had that opportunity because you get a whole extra years it's not just the basketballers you can spread your classes out as well so you can take less classes so you graduate uh, without the pressure of it taking five classes a week maybe you can take three or four classes uh, maybe you don't have to stay for summer school so it just takes the whole workload off you and you can just learn the plays, learn the systems, you know, go to different arenas. You can see it firsthand. And then the next time you go there the following season, you'll be more comfortable. So just all around it really benefited me and probably a lot of other people. And then off the court, like, how were you finding uh, university life? Do you remember, you know, first stepping onto campus and kind of, I guess... It, for you, compared to a lot of other students, it was slightly different because you'd already done the whole moving away from home and living independently. Um, well, living more independently than you would have done if you were living in England. Uh, but yeah, how, how do you feel like you 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 found university life sort of off the court and I guess you know campus life uh, at at Rice State? Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, luckily, um, we had uh, I had three um, great other freshmen. Two of them was from Dayton. Um, played at the same high school, um, and then one of the guys from Indiana. Uh, so we had the, you know, the four of us as a freshman class, all hanging around together. Um, it was slightly different at Wright State because we we stayed in apartments off campus, so we wasn't in the dorms on campus um, with all the tight curfews and everything else. So uh, we were quite independent, really. Um, yeah. But it, it was great. 
but it, a lot of it is because of the guys that you're coming in with. So there was like four of us. Um, so we just all hung out together. So it was it was really good. And then another guy from Europe, a guy called Mike Nahar from Holland, a seven-foot centre. Uh, so he was kind of like my big brother there. Um, so, he, he, you know, I was, he took me under his wing in a way. And then going into your... It's like your freshman season, but obviously it's not your freshman. It's like it is your freshman season on the on the court. But yeah, so that first yeah. year, sort of sort of playing, um, there was a lot of expectations around the team, right? There was a lot a, a lot of uh, a lot of people believed that you had a chance to do very very well. Um, kind of what what were your memories going into that season, um, and how how I guess you found it actually finally getting on the court and and playing college basketball. Yeah, you're right. There was loads of excitement about that season, uh, so much so that um, Midnight Madness, uh, not Namo's one, but you know Midnight Madness were the start of the season. Um, Dick Vitale, those guys that don't know who he is, they need about to research who Dick Vitale is. Uh, he came to our school and did our Midnight Madness. So when we had our scrimmage at 12:01, Dick Vitale was there, um, you know, on the microphone. So that was that was we knew something special was going to happen that season. And where, and where the were season. the expectations coming from? Like, why why was there all this excitement around the team? Um, I'd say two reasons. Um, one, a guy called Mark Woods. Um, he wasn't he wasn't on the team the year before for I forget the reason, but he came back to school. Um, he led the nation in steals and assists up until the last five games, I believe, and that was when Jason Kidd was playing um, and that era of, of um, college basketball. Uh, also, Bill Edwards was predicted a first-round NBA play, NBA pick. Um, we had the seven-foot centre, uh, like I said before, Mike Nahar. Um, we had a really good team, and um, was people thought we might be able to go to the NCAA tournament. What were the expectations people had of you personally? Uh, do you remember what people were saying about you before the season started, and then kind of as the season went on, like what, uh, yeah, what people thought that they were going to be getting from from this English kid? I probably think that they thought I'd be pretty solid um, in the next in the next couple of years. Um, obviously, Bill Edwards was going to dominate, and Mark Woods, Sean Hammonds, power forward, and different people. I think they thought in a few years I, yeah, I'd be able to maybe take over from where Bill left off. But what happened, unfortunately, for Sean Hammonds, who was our starting power forward, third game of the season, he dislocated his knee. Um, so. I was maybe playing 10, 15 minutes a game before that. Uh, he dislocated his knee in the third game of the season, which was just one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. And that indirectly pushed me into the starting lineup. Um, so it was a surprise. I, I basically, I think I started 10 games, uh, five early on, and then the last five of the season, um, like in the NCAA tournament and stuff. But I, I probably played 20, 25 minutes a game. So I probably played a lot more than, than people expected, really. And do you feel like people were perceiving your performances positively? Like, you know, obviously you were playing more, but were, were you performing in a way that they felt was up to your potential? Uh, I would say so, yeah. I, I, had, I had some really solid games. Um, but the dominance of Bill Edwards, um, unbelievable. You know, 45-point games, 38-point games. He averaged 25 points, 10 rebounds a game. So he, had, he was fifth leading scorer in the nation. Our point guard was leading the nation in steals and assists. We averaged 93 points a game. We're third in the nation in scoring. So I would always do my thing. Um, but obviously, 
you know, we've got some stars in our team. So yeah. I just did my role as usual. So how did that season end up playing out? Um, it, we won the conference tournament. Um, Bill Edwards, he, he had like 38 points in, in the conference final. Uh, and that led us to the NCAA tournament where we faced Indiana Hoosiers, who were number one in, in America. Unfortunately, in Indianapolis, their home court. We have to talk about how many fans you played in front of. Well, the, the, what I always tell people, the practice, uh, so the shoot around the day before the game, an hour slot, everyone had an hour slot. Uh, just in the shoot around, there was 20,000 people in the Hoosier Dome in India, 20,000. Um, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then I like the game, so I... I yeah, go on in the game, game, yeah. Uh, 43,000. Unreal. Well, well, like, how can you even begin to describe that? Like, for, you know, someone like me who's, I don't even know if I've ever been in a, an arena with 43,000 people in it, but to be actually... Football stadium. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm trying to... Th oh, yeah, possibly, actually. Um, but to be, to be, you know, part of a basketball team that's, you know, on the centre stage, kind of like... What are your memories? Can you remember looking up and looking around and just being mesmerized by it all? Like, were you scared? Like, were you nervous? Like, um, yeah, talk about kind of the 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 feelings about playing in front of that many people. That was the exact moment that I knew that I realized my dream. So from watching, you know, Book, Carl Brown, them guys playing at that uh, center stage like that, you know, when I was 14 years old and dreaming, it was like you pinching yourself, like, am I really here? Am I really here? And fortunately, I, I was starting as a freshman, so it wasn't like I was just on the end of the bench thinking, oh, I hope I get in. So I knew I was starting in the game. Um, and it was bittersweet um, because my dad had died literally about three or four days before. Uh, so it was one of them things where I actually wasn't as nervous as, as I thought I, I, I should have been because, I don't know, I just kind of, you know, took his death as that was what we'd always planned for me to be playing at that stage. Um, so for some reason, I wasn't as nervous as I normally would have been. So I was able to perform and, and just, it was just an unreal experience, apart from we got spanked. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what was the, what was the, the final, uh, the final score on that, like, I think we got beat by 37. Wow. Um, like I said, it's Indiana Hoosiers. They was number one in the nation. But, and Bill Edge, was, he, he had a tough game. I mean, obviously, they scouted him. They knew he was, you know, our main player. He, he didn't have his best performance by, by any means. So, um, it was just a tough night <laughs> in the office in front of their home fans. So, they had 39,000 fans. We had maybe 4,000. So, um, that, it's always tough playing in front of their, their home gym, you know. Yeah, must like what's the? I mean, going into the game, you're obviously, well, Indiana are overwhelming favourites. Uh, you're the massive underdogs. I assume you know you guys you knew that. Um, but I guess what's the what's the mentality going in? Like going in, did you do you feel like you as a team believed that you had a chance to win, or was it a case of you know they're way too talented, we're not going to be able to win, but let's just you know, do our best, try and keep it respectable, and and that's that. I think the, the first game of the season we played Kentucky, 
University of Kentucky in the Rupp Arena in front of like 23,000. And they was number one in the nation at that time. And I think we were down like five points with, with five minutes left. So we knew that we that was when they had Jamal Mashburn and um, Roderick Rhodes, I think, and them guys. So we knew we could hang with, with teams at that level if we performed and played smart. Um, but I think Bill coming out and, and having such a tough time, um, a lot of it because, you know, their defence just totally, you know, focused in on him. Um, we didn't get off to a great start. So they come out and then from then it was a little bit downhill. It's, it's, I mean, it's tough. Like when you when you have a uh, when you have a, a player of of his caliber, there is a I don't know whether over reliance is the right word, but of course it it means that everyone plays certain roles, right? And then all of a sudden, actually, mm-hmm. if if your if your main weapon is is uh, neutralized, and then all of a sudden you've got guys that are not used to needing to take more shots or or sort of be the yeah. guy. Uh, in those positions, it makes it a lot harder to succeed. Do you, do you feel like that ended up mm, sort of um, contributing to the difficulties you had because of the fact that, you know, in the rest of your roles across the team, uh, you were used to just relying on, on Edwards so much? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, also, you know, our other main players, Mark Woods, Mike Nahar. But, yeah, you're right in what you said. But also, I think, because they was playing in the backyard, you know, it's an NCAA tournament. We we could have been playing in California, or we could have been sent anywhere. But we were sent two hours down the road to in, to Indianapolis, which was their home gym. And, you know, with this, you know, forty odd thousand, you know, home supporters. That that you know, as soon as they got off to a little roll at the start of the game, that was it. The crowd is just crazy the whole time. Then so that gives them so much confidence. So, so that was one of the main factors as well, I think. Coming out of out of your your freshman year, you're going to sophomore year, kind of, what are the lessons that you took from your freshman year going into your sophomore year, and what, what were your, um, I guess, expectations going into into your into your second year on the court? Oh, we lost you. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's Sorry. Right. That's all right. Um, yeah, the expectations was obviously we knew we were um, losing a lot a lot of firepower. Like, you know, maybe three or four seniors were leaving. Um, so, obviously, the expectations was probably not as high as, you know, obviously the season before. But coming off um, that season we had, and we had a lot more confidence and obviously experience. Um, and I was excited, you know, because obviously now I was thrust more um, into the forefront as you know, a main player. Um, so it, it was exciting, really. It was it was exciting, but the season didn't quite turn out how we planned. But um, it, it was still it was a very tough season, I think, to be honest. My sophomore year. Yeah. Why was it such a difficult season? I think um, I played a lot. I think, but um, our record wasn't so good. I, I can't remember our records exactly, but I think we was only like five hundred um, when the season before we were. What twenty seven and twenty seven and nine or something the year before, and then going to like five hundred, maybe like fifteen, fifteen or something like that. So you know you're losing, you know, big time players, big time players. So you know, um, so obviously it, it's a rebuilding year in a way. It's so it was just that's how it is really. 
were you able to take on a bigger role on the team and as a result have you know better better individual numbers even if the the team success wasn't there um yeah i, I definitely played a lot my, my stats were pretty much similar really um throughout my whole career it was basically like seven points my freshman year and then like nine ten points the rest of my career so for some reason it was always you know similar even though i played a lot more my problem was i i didn't take a lot of shots that was just like my fault you know i mean i, I just was too unselfish i was too unselfish so yeah I was gonna, my stats weren't so much higher. i was gonna say that you, you spoke about that in, in your book that kind of if you're gonna sort of i guess take a a criticism that you felt uh, looking back that you maybe would do differently was the fact that you were so unselfish and you, and at times you needed to shoot more and sort of, I guess, be more ball dominant if you want to call it that. Um, why? Why do you think that was? Why do you think it was that you uh, sort of defaulted to to being so unselfish on the court? I think a few different reasons. I think one of them is the fact that pretty much I grew up being a point guard um, so all my early years before I went to the States I was a point guard so that's just kind of how I played I like to drive and kick and things so I'd be driving to the basket and kicking it even though I'm wide open for the layup and coach would be like oh you're wide open you know so it, that was just kind of my mentality and not as like a scorer uh, you know like where me and Yorick are completely different players because you know we grew up playing together he's a pure scorer I was just more you know my mentality was just more like assists that was one reason. Um, probably also not having a coach that really, really supported you. I've had coaches before um, playing in England, um, national teams, like people like Curtis Xavier and certain other people where they've been like, you need to score. So I would score, but they had to really tell me to do it. It wasn't just something that kind of, I could do it. It just wasn't really in my mentality to mm. just go out and score. So um, so I think it was a combination of a few things, really. Um, you obviously your your nickname mr versatility uh because of the fact that you're able to you know stuff the stuff the stat stuff the box score um where did that when did that first come about how did that come about um i would say when i played in europe um because in England, I played the point when I went playing high school in the States. I played the two. When I played at Wright State, I played the three. And it was a few years into my pro career where you know, I was bouncing around from team to team. My agent sending me to different places and, oh, they need a foreman. Well, I'm not a foreman. Well, you can play the four over there, you know, in Germany or whatever. So it was through getting certain jobs through my agent where I had to play different positions. Um, so that's what happened. So then I ended up being able to play all different positions, um, even though I didn't like it. I, I really didn't like it a lot of times, especially not when I had to play the four for many, many years, maybe four seasons I had to play the power forward. So then the, that would, um, I'd lose confidence in my outside shot and things and my ball handling and different things because you're just stuck with the big men every day for like three or four years. It, you know, it, it was a completely different thing. So that's kind of how where that came from. Right. I'm I'm trying to think. Uh, I feel like uh, even though I only I finished the book probably last week, but um, I'm already in this parts of it that I'm not sure which bit was which. Am I right in thinking? Correct me if I'm wrong. But did you have a few? There were a few games. I think it was at college rather than in the pros. Well, I'm, you probably did it yeah. in the pros as well. But there was a few games at college where you did come particularly close to getting a triple double, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I always missed it by one, one assist. Yeah, there were there was two or three times it was like, yeah, I missed it by like an assist. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm aware of time, um, but I do want to. We we can't talk about college without talking about the shot. Um, so uh, can you? For people that have got no idea about it, give us the context. Um, the game that it happened in, uh, uh, the situation, and then I guess your memory of how it all played out, whether or not that was exactly how it was drawn up. Um, yeah, just kind of, I guess, talk us through it. Give us a, a, story, a story time um, so that, um, yeah, the viewer, the listener can, can get an idea of uh, exactly what happened and... I guess is well I, the biggest shot of your career. I would I would say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So in context, um, Xavier, um, they were the top team in our conference by far, uh, undefeated, um, top twenty-five in America. Um, and every time we played them, we had a battle. So we're in Dayton, they're in Cincinnati. So it's it's only forty-five minutes away. Um, so we played them close throughout the season, uh, really, really close games. Uh, and the conference tournament um, was held at our school. And they was a bit mad about that because they, they was um, 14 and 0, 23, uh, 23rd in the nation. And they thought, well, why is the tournament being at Rice State? Because we, we was number eight, eight seed to go in the tournament. So actually we were tied eight seed. So we had to play on a, on a Thursday, uh, play against the other AFC just to get into the tournament. So we ended up uh, beating that team. So then we became the eighth seed. So then the next game we had to play number one seed, which was Xavier, who they'd previously beaten us twice during the season, but only by like eight points and, and 12 points. So it was quite close, both games. Um, so this game, uh, obviously, if we lost the game, the season was finished. Uh, we'd had a not a very good season. We had a, you know, NBA prospect center, Vitaly Potapenko from uh, Ukraine. But that season, that was his first year there. But the season didn't go well. We, we were, I think, 13 and 15 or something. And we had a terrible season. Uh, so this was a way of um, reigniting our season um, with this game. Because if we lost, the season was finished. So that it came about. Um, the game was close. We were leading at halftime. Um, and then with seven minutes to go in the game, Vitaly Potapenko, who was our star player, got drafted um, first round, uh, number 11 pick, lottery pick. And he filed out with seven minutes to go. Um, so then we kind of, uh, people thought we fell apart a little bit. I got into a little altercation with one of my teammates. Um, but then after that, um, we just kept playing. We were a very small, really small lineup. I think I was the tallest player um, at like 6'6". Six, six. So we had a really small lineup and it, the game went all the way down to the wire. Uh, we were down one point seventy to sixty nine with like three seconds left. Ball got knocked out of bounds. Then there was one second left, and then we had to throw the ball all the way from the end of the court uh, with a second left, and I had to catch it and score for in order for us to knock off um, Xavier. And luckily, that's what happened with a play that was actually drawn up for Vitali uh, called home run. He was supposed to receive the ball, uh, turn around and shoot. But obviously, he was on the bench, so. Uh, I got put in that position and my good friend and teammate, uh, John Ramey, threw the perfect pass. Um, and luckily, the, the shot clock didn't expire by the time it went through the net. So it was a fairy tale. Yeah, fairy tale. So the place erupted and, and we lived to fight another day. 
seeing that ball go through the hoop, like, you know, can you still see it in your head now? Like, try and describe to us that feeling. Uh, you know, that is, cause that that is the ultimate dream, right? You know, every kid, I remember when I was younger, you know, when you were on the court and you, you, you count down yourself, you're three, two, one, and you, you know, pretend you're, you're hitting some game-winning uh, shot at the buzzer. Like, kind of what were your, what your, your emotions at that point, um, knowing that you'd just hit the shot of a lifetime? I think it was, it was a feeling of finally, finally I'm here. Finally I'm at this level. You know, after all the hard work, after you know, the death of my dad, uh, the, the terrible season, um, you know, biding my time. Um, it, it was just finally after all the you know negative stuff had happened, because uh, it wasn't all great. Um, all the things. Um, it was just finally like a, a deep, a deep breath. It was just finally like. I'm here. I'm finally here. Like all the dreams, everything else. I'm finally on this stage. I, and the fact that I thought um, there wasn't enough time left. I thought that was it. That was it. That was it. You know, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time. And then because it was like a 1.1 second, I was like, oh, season's finished. Oh, you know what we're going to do. And then in a split second, we're like, wow, we're, we're going. Maybe go to the NCAA now. So it was just, it's just an unbelievable experience. What was the reaction like to that shot? Like when you talk about media coverage, um, you know, other people taking note. Do you think was the basketball community in the UK aware uh, that you hit it? Was there coverage in the UK? Like, um, yeah, I guess what was the sort of the the knowledge about it within the global uh, and I guess the media coverage as well, just just locally um, for you. I'm not sure about the UK. Um, I don't exactly know what was going on there in like '95, but what I do know is that um, in the states it was crazy. Um, my, my former teammate Bill Edwards, he was playing professionally in Italy, and he called me and and said that it was just live on uh, CNN. He'd seen it on CNN, and then ESPN broke it um, into their like North Carolina Duke game, and um, and then showed it live on, on their game. Um, and then it was um, ESPN Player of the Week. So in the states, it was crazy, absolutely wow. crazy. Wow. But like I said, I don't I don't know what happened in the, in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> something did they even ne- have YouTube then? Yeah, something, <laughs> I don't know if they had YouTube. Then. Some things never change. Um, were you? So that was that was your junior year, right? Yeah, that was the end of my junior. That year. was the end of your junior year. Kind of when you when you talk about your own aspirations within basketball at this point, were you still um, hoping that you were going to go to the NBA? End of my junior year, uh, yeah, but I, I would say what changed that for me is when Vitali came to our school, who was six foot ten, three hundred pound NBA specimen. When he came to the school, the whole focus was, you know, just getting to the NBA. So it kind of changed so that it kind of the spotlight went away from me a little bit and, and more all the focus was on him really. Um so then I kind of realized that oh I probably won't I, I probably won't make it uh, to the NBA. Um because of the way my head coach wanted to play um you know as in give the ball to the center all the time and not really let too many other people shine so because of that i kind of realized that you know i'm probably not going to make it uh, to the nba do you feel like you had the ability and talent yeah i i just um 
I just needed to be a better shooter, more confident shooter. That that that's that was the weakness. The weakness was uh, the, the confident three point shot. That was the missing link there. Consistent, consistent three point shot. Were you aware of that? Like obviously, you know, now years later, I think for everyone, it's it's easier to look back and say and be able to look at it sort of a bit more removed from the situation, right? Um, at the time, do you feel like you were aware of that as a big weakness in your game? Um, I'll say yes and no, because I think as a player and now as a coach, a lot of it is to do with your coach, meaning some coaches give you confidence and some players ignore the coach and just shoot the ball anyway. Let's say, I don't care if the coach tells me to shoot or not, I'm going to shoot. But I realise that that's going to get you on the bench real quick. So um, if your coach doesn't have a lot of confidence in you and if you take one or two shots, he's going to pull you out of the game. It makes you think twice. And it's those little things. Or if you have another coach that really gives you helps you, uh, gives you confidence where he feels you need it, like, you know, gives you a little bit of the green light, I'll shoot, you know, don't worry if you miss, you know, just little things like that. That can be the difference between somebody being, you know, a great player, great shooter, great whatever. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, with time, so I, I, we need to talk about the pros a bit. Um, process of turning pro, like, you know, you you graduated from from Wright State. What were the kind of the immediate steps um, for you looking at, you know? becoming a professional basketball player like you know you sign with an agent what were you thinking uh in terms of like who to sign with what the process was one of the things i like that you said in your book was about the fact that there's it's, it was hard to find sort of um i guess financial advice and, and advice in general about kind of uh the pathway or what you should be doing or there's no blueprint necessarily yeah. i guess or people that you could get advice from um, so what, yeah, what was your own process when it came from, when it came to, um, you know, moving into the pros? Well, a whole, a whole new door opened up. So the Bosman ruling, uh, which a lot of guys in my generation will be aware of from not being sure if I'll be professional by the time I finished college. Um, this new rule, just as I just as I was finishing college, this new rule came out in the summertime called the Bosman rule, which basically meant you could play anywhere in, in the EU uh, if you're English or in the EU uh, without being considered a foreigner. So I could go to uh, Spain and just be considered a Spaniard instead of being a, um, an American. Uh, so when that came out, they was looking for uh, high-level European players within D1 that could compete at that level and like we said earlier there was maybe only 10 of us in the whole us that was playing at that high level uh we had a passport uh so then we we became like gold dust. <laughs> so we could basically pick and choose where we wanted to play and i signed with a european agent um, because i thought that would be the best step because if i signed with an american one they'd only have to go to an um a european one to play in europe anyway so it's like cutting out the middleman um so then it was just the advice from them saying where you should play and what offers you have on the table. So it all came out of nowhere. It was after the senior, after my senior season, everything just opened up. It was the timing was perfect. Was the Bosman did the Bosman ruling happen? Like, was it a case of you finished you finished college? Uh, the Bosman ruling hadn't happened yet, 
So at that point, it was actually looking, oh, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to have offers to play in Europe or whatever. And then the Bosnian ruling happened and, of course, it changed everything. Or was it, did it happen while she was still uh, at college? Season finished March. Um, I would say this happened maybe like April or May. Oh, really? So the around then, yeah, it wasn't too long after. I, I can't be specific. It might have been about May time. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, I had all these phone calls from people I didn't even know, um, just calling all agents saying, oh, this rules happened, da-da-da, sign with us, sign with us, sign with us. So I went from maybe thinking, oh, I'm going to have to play in the BBL. No disrespect to the BBL, but I, I wanted to, you know, play in Europe after playing in the States. Um, so I, I think I was going to play for Sheffield Sharks, come home and play for Sheffield. Um, and then I had all these phone calls coming up from all these agents. And then so just a whole other world was was opened up. And it was just really exciting. And one of the main things was, um, one of the main decisions was, do I go over there then? and finish the season, like I had a contract to go to Victoria Tauragas in, in ACB in Spain to finish that season, i.e. May, June, uh, or do I wait till September and, and go for the whole season? So that was the main thing I had to think about. And what made, what did you decide and why did you make the decision that you made? It was too risky to go to the ACB um, even though the money was ridiculous for like two months um, because your stock could drop. I had, my stock was very high at that time. So was the other players. Um, if you went to like the team at the end of the season, during playoffs, didn't fit in, didn't do well, then therefore your stock would be dropped. Uh, by September, you, you couldn't demand the same type of money. Yeah. So if you just um, waited it out, go somewhere fresh for the new season, uh, that was the smartest thing to do. So that's why I decided to do and the other thing that um, I thought was interesting in, in your book and I, I, I appreciated was the fact that you spoke about the numbers, uh, which is always hard to do in terms of uh, getting figures from, from players in terms of salaries, which is, is one of the things that... People lie. <laughs> People lie. You know I mean? um, and yeah, I, I, you know, you, you, you put in there, you, your agent come and told you he reckons that you can get 100,000 net uh, that was you. That was US. So that's you know at that time was probably what equate to about seventy five thousand pounds ish, seventy seventy five thousand pounds. And I think that first your first rookie contract ended up being was it ninety thousand ninety thousand US net? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which ninety thousand? Yeah, go on. Car and apartment. Yeah, but it, like the difference is like now now we work in a real world and you. I pay taxes and gross and everything. <laughs> yeah, it the contracts were all net. I didn't know what tax was. Yeah, the clubs pay the tax. <laughs> but yeah, it's a big difference, a <laughs> huge difference. <laughs> and of course, I mean this. I this was obviously before a time when the European basketball market is, is I think, is nowhere near. Doesn't pay for well for a lot of guys won't pay anywhere where near that. Um, nowadays, I think it was. Yeah, very very different period, but still, like to have the context on on those figures uh, is super inspiring. I think for a, lo- a lot of young players to know that you know you can you can earn good money playing basketball, right? Um, the other thing is, wasn't it you ended up you said I think you said that in your local paper back home they had written a a news article 
after you'd won your rookie contract, sort of detailing the the amount of money it was for as well, saying, you know, 65,000, sla- was it slam dunk or some type of headline yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, £65,000 slam dunk, yeah. What made you decide to go public with, with uh, your salary figure? Um, I, I didn't see a reason to hide it, really. Um, they asked me, you know, you know what the contract was like. Was it lucrative? And I just told them the figure. But yeah. that figure was nothing. That figure was nothing compared to my former teammates, the money they were making. Really? It, it was like, yeah, it was, it was not even close. So it was at the very lower end of the scale. Wow. Yeah. Even even in Italy, our team had the lowest budget uh, in the whole first division, and and you know so you're playing against guys making half a million, making a million, you know. So it was like that was small change over there at that time. Did you feel like you're on track to be able to get those half million million pound contracts within the coming years? Like was that uh, was that kind of on your radar? I mean. You said in in the book that you know even f- for you to hear figures of a hundred thousand being thrown around was pretty unbelievable to you at that point, and it's like wow, yeah. this is you know, um, yeah. but kind of you know like you just said knowing knowing that there are other guys earning five, six, seven, eight times that. Um, did you feel like that was mm-hmm. in the realms of possibility for you as well? I, I was hope the way I saw it in my mind, you know, I, I was on ninety first year. I figured. 100 to 150 the following year um or in the next couple of years uh, and then you know after that you know depending how you play how you perform um you know you'd be up there at that couple of hundred grand mark um consistently really in that league um that's what i thought um but i actually ended up turning down a three-year contract in italy so and coming back home so that that that's where all that finished <laughs> so <laughs> That, that so that that uh that rookie year in Italy kind of talk about life in the pros. How, how did you find the transition from college to the professional game? Um, yeah, yeah. Like, how was it? Was it was it everything that 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 you had dreamed of? Uh, yes and no. Um, you, you you soon realize it's a job. It's a job. It's a long hard job for like nine or ten months. It's getting up every day practicing twice a day five six times a week for eight nine months a year um and especially like anything else if you're not winning a lot of things change you know you you're not smiling anymore when you go into practice and teammates are you know hanging out of each other and things like that so there's a lot of stuff that comes in it um you know it's not like uh, in college when you have all the camaraderie and everyone's the same age and you go into places where guys have kids wives and um the older, the 35 years old, you're like 22, and it's it's different. It's definitely a job, and like I said, if you're not winning, that's when things kind of start to go downhill, and we weren't winning a lot in that first year, so, you know, there's more pressure and things like that. Did, did it grind you down? Like, did you feel like uh, there was any part of you that kind of fell out, fell, fell out of love with the game? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. When I was like 23, 23 yeah um i just fell out of love with the game to be honest um that passion that i had as a teenager it left um through different reasons um 
yeah and that, that's it really in a nutshell I, I just lost that dying passion to try and make it to the NBA and a lot of that is, is just like unhappiness through playing on the court because I say that one of my happiest times was playing at Chester Jets and um, when we won the championship making you know hardly any money compared to that but you don't think about money and things you just think about the game and happiness and on the court and if things aren't going well on the court or off the court then you know it takes a toll so do you did you contemplate quitting no no i never don't contemplate quitting when i say a fella i love it, i just meant that burning passion where you're willing to do anything to try and make it to the nba i lost that that passion i never ever wanted to quit well, not not uh, nowhere near that time. Maybe way, way, way years later. Yeah. But it was just you know the actual love and desire that you had, like in college or in high school. When you see it's just the grind and it's not much fun sometimes. You know, for various reasons, it's not much fun. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of people that's played in a lot of different countries in Europe. Um, some of them will understand that. So, your. Um, am I right in thinking your first England senior call up was in your rookie year as well? Was that was it around the same sort of time? Yeah, I think it had to be because you wasn't allowed to play for England when you was in college. So that's why I only got my first men's team cap when I was like twenty three when I played in Italy because you wasn't allowed to play before that. What are your memories like? Who 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 was coaching the program at that at that point? Uh. And I guess what are your memories of your first call up? Like, how did that make you feel? Talk about kind of like I guess representing your country and what that meant to you. Yeah, uh, Lazlo Nemeth was was the coach. Um, uh, Peter Scansbury was the was the captain, uh, and it was great because I got to play with people that I looked up to when I was young. People like you know Carl Brown, uh, Steve Butner. Um, I remember I bumped into Buck in the, in the airport on the way, I think, to meet up with national team when I introduced myself to him, told him, you know, looked up to you, you helped me get to where I got, you know, uh, and then playing with these guys on the court every day and, you know, just sharing the court with them after guys you've looked up to since you was a kid. So uh, that was just great. And another one of them feelings where it's like, I finally made it, you know, I think I finally made it to where I wanted to get to. I always wanted to play on the national team and things like that. So it was good. Talking about the national team, let's just stay down there for a little bit. So you ended up um, collecting 77, 77 caps for your for your country. Uh, yeah. I guess when you look back, that was over a 10-year period, you know, culminating um, in the Commonwealth Games in 2006. Uh, obviously, you, you won a bronze medal. When you talk about the standout memories, um, the... Yeah, the, the sort of most prominent memories in your mind from your um, time representing England, like what are they? Uh, I guess talk us through uh, some of some of the best ones. I think it was just the camaraderie of the players. You know, there's some great guys that on that team. You know, you're talking about Andy Betts, um, Roger Huggins, Butnall, Carl Brown, Yorick Williams, Steve Hansel, um, all these guys. Um, we, you know, every time we, we were all playing in different countries in Europe, so every time we met up, uh, like twice a year, it was just great to see everybody, and we, we just had such great times on and off the court. Uh, Tony Dorsey was playing as well, um, 
it was just that. It was the camaraderie. Everybody liked each other. Everyone got along. We all loved playing for Laszlo. Um, he was, you know, a really great players coach. And, you know, we're going up against, you know, playing Spain, you're playing Italy, all these, you know, top, top uh, level teams. Um, it was just fantastic. Really, really, really good experiences. A lot of, you know, I've obviously spoken to a few of your teammates from from, from that team, from that era, that those squads in that era, mm. and everyone speaks so highly of 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 Laszlo um, as a as a player's coach. Like, what was it about him? That, that what was it that separated him, and what made him uh, loved by the players so much? He always fought um, for his players. He always was in our corner. You know, when things weren't going right with. Um, you know, the England basketball and things like that. Um, he would always stick up for us, um, even pay out of his own pocket if, you know, we didn't have, you know, the money that we needed and, you know, he'd buy us meals and he'd just do anything. Uh, always support, always put us first. Always put us first. Um, and everyone will tell you the same thing. So over the whole decade I played, um, he, he just always put his players first. When you talk about uh, most memorable victories that you had uh, with England, are there any that particular come to come to mind? Um, Hungary, we played Hungary um, in Coventry. Obviously, Laszlo's Hungarian. Um, we we had to beat Hungary by seven points. It had to be six or more points uh, in order for us to get to the next round or something. Um, and I remember we we won by seven points. And that was again that Roger Huggins injured himself in the first, I want to say, first minute of the game. He went up for a rebound, came down, and he was gone. Um, and we didn't have a deep team at that time. Um, we might have only had about eight or nine people on the bench. Um, but that victory, we won by seven points. Uh, another big one was uh, Slovenia. Um, Slovenia had just beaten it. Within the same week, this is how crazy it was, within the same week, Italy beat us by 50. Slovenia beat Italy by X amount. I'm not sure how much. And then we beat Slovenia within the same week of basketball. Um, so uh, that was a Coventry as well, beating Slovenia. Like I said, it just beat Italy. It was one of the best teams at the time. So they were probably the two best victims. Oh, apart from obviously um, the Commonwealth Games one. Of course. Do you want to talk about the Commonwealth Games uh, briefly? Kind of like, what was that like as an experience? And obviously... You know, Mali, uh, you know, win, winning a medal. That whole experience was just fantastic because um, it was 18 months in the process building up, um, going um, away to Japan one summer, and uh, the whole lead up took 18 months. Um, and then being in the Commonwealth Games, that, that we was there for um, a month. Uh, it was it was just, it was hard enough just making the team, making the squad of 12, because everybody wanted to make that squad. And then you had people that were naturalised, like Fab Flournoy, uh, coming in. Uh, so it made it even tougher. Um, so just making the squad was just, like, unbelievable. And then, obviously, going to Commonwealth Games, playing, being there for a month. Um, and the pressure to win uh, a bronze medal, because it was kind of like you had to win. Nothing else was going to be accepted. You had to come on with a medal. And to, to finally get that medal against Nigeria, it was just like a culmination of just like finally, you know, we, we did it, we did it. And I kind of knew I was going to retire then at the end of that from national team. So heading into those games, obviously, you know, you said there you knew that you had to medal. 
was there an expectation that potentially you would do better than a bronze? Um, or, yeah, like, what were the expectations? I mean, I don't know. I wasn't covering the sport yeah. at that time. I'd be interested to kind of hear. I think it was pretty realistic. Um, Australia, I think, were ninth in the world at the time. Uh, New Zealand, a very tough team. I'm not sure where they were. Um, they was probably top 20. It might have been possible to beat New Zealand if you played excellently. Um, but the realistic um, finish would, would have been third. Right. Which is where we came. Okay. So jump, jumping back to to, to the pros, to pro career. Obviously, after that that initial rookie year, um, Trieste ended up. They did offer you a, a a contract again to bring you back, which you ended up turning down. Like, I think that is that is that yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What happened yeah. with that? Uh, talk us through kind of yeah, what exactly went down. What happened with that was uh, we were losing um, throughout the season. Um, there was eight games left. We had to win seven games out of eight to, to stay in Division One. Uh, so they fired both our Americans, brought in two Yugoslavs. Um, and then I, I was starting the whole season. So then they benched me and then played the Italians, guys in my position. So they just changed the whole thing um, in order to try and win these last seven games. Um, so the last seven games I really didn't play much and the general manager offered me a three-year contract during this time when I wasn't playing and the coach told me you're not going to play anymore for the rest of the season so I was a little bit mad and so when the general manager offered me a three-year extension at that particular time when I was actually on the bench the last six games probably I said no <laughs> I said no I'm not I'm not coming back so that was one of the main reasons why I decided to uh, sign back in the Manchester Giants BBL. Looking back on it now, do you regret that decision? And also, I'd been away for seven years. That was also so that uh, that was my seven, seventh year away from home. So that that was also you know uh, a reason. Um, yeah, I am. Um, what I probably would regret because I'm sorry. I had a package deal to play uh, uh, with Roger Huggins. I think it was Ostend in Belgium. Uh, and that, that's what the decision I regret. Because he went there and, and he stayed there three years, had a fantastic career. And I turned that, that job down um, and things didn't turn out my way, um, staying in the BBL and things. So uh, that's probably one decision I do regret is, is not going with Roger Huggins uh, to that team. Antwerp, sorry, it was Antwerp. And then, so you ended up signing in Manchester. You know, this was this was what like around ninety seven ish. It was kind of giants were on the come up. A lot of money being thrown around, budget and everything else. Kind of how how did that play out for you? How was it for you coming home, I guess, and like playing at home for the first time, playing in the BBL for the first time? Um, was that a good and needed uh, break slash return? Yeah, it was good. Like I said, I've been away seven years. Um, it was good playing in my hometown, uh, home team, because I, I played in Manchester when I was younger. Um, that part of it w- was excellent. Uh, but just the playing, um, you know, the first three games, I played 27 minutes. 
within three games. So he's having like nine minutes a game. Um, and, you know, I'd probably sign one of the biggest contracts in the country. So I, I wasn't getting played. I wasn't getting played. And then after the fourth game, um, I think I played 10 minutes and then I was released. Um, and I said, fine, pay me the money. And then it was like, well, there was a 10-week clause in the contract that I didn't know about because my agent, a European agent said, don't sign in, in the BBL. No disrespect to the BBL, but he said, you don't go from first division Italy and then go to the BBL because it'd be hard to get back out. Um, but I ignored him um, and did that. And then I lost a lot of money in that contract after getting fired. So I wasn't, I was only due what the two months I was there. So then it was hard to get back on track after that. How much was that, that contract worth? It was a lot of bonuses. It was a lot of bonuses. It, you know, it was all towards the tail end of the season. It like judging on wins, like winning this, winning that. Um, then it would have it would have come up to a, probably a nice amount, depending how much you won. Uh, but not as much as what I turned down to play in um, Belgium. Which was seventy five thousand dollars. I turned that down to stay home for less money. Wow! And that, originally, when Manchester recruited you, they had kind of sold you on the fact that they were going to build around you, right? But then actually, they ended up recruiting mm. Americans in your position. Um, pretty much. But to be fair, I, I didn't really get the opportunity to play. I didn't really get the opportunity to play that much. So you know, like I said, I, I left after four games. For, and I only played nine minutes a game. So I, I'm fine if I played 25, 30 minutes a game and you're not producing. Okay, go. <laughs> but I, I wasn't really getting played, so. Yeah, didn't even feel like you got the shot the shot necessarily. No. When you... So, so many um, parts of this that, we, that we're not going to be able to get to, but kind of when you look at uh, the rest of your, your pro career... You know, you had time in Germany, Netherlands, France, Austria. Um, one of the things you, you you said in your book was actually the period in the Netherlands. It, it felt like that was when you first started, uh, I guess, almost feeling settled and and were sort of happy where you where you were basketball wise. You had a great group of guys that were getting on and kind of, I guess, gave you a level of of happiness both on and off the court. Can you kind of talk about your your yeah. your period in the Netherlands and and what about it was different and what made you uh, enjoy it so much? Um, the the country um, everyone speaks English, a small country. So when you're traveling, um, you know obviously you only go in like a couple of hours, you know, for, for a game. The team I went to was uh, they just won the national championship. Uh, Den Helder, it was. Uh, they was also going to be playing it in a the supporter cup. So you have the EuroLeague, which is the top league, then um, the Supporter Cup was the one just below that. So they were playing. It was the opportunity to play against teams from Italy and other places as well. So so it was it was a great situation to go there. Uh, they had um, four, I think, four Americans, um, all my age, all played D1. Um, point guard Tony Miller played at Marquette. I think he's fifth all-time in NCAA history in, in assists, um, still to this day. So we had a really good team. Uh, like I said, all the guys got on. We're all 25 years old. Um, we're playing in the domestic league. Uh, and then we're also playing every Wednesday. We're playing in Italy against Treviso. And we're playing in Austria. And then we're playing everywhere else. So it was just fantastic. 
I do want to briefly speak about uh, well, we'll speak about the championship year in in Chester because you kind of you you mentioned that before as well uh, that you were getting a lot of uh, I guess fulfilment there even though money potentially wasn't as much as uh, you you had been earning previously. Kind of what were your memories of that season, um, and why do you look upon it so fondly? I, I decided to come home. Um, uh, my last year I played in Austria, 2003, 2003-4, I think. Uh, I decided to come home after about 14 years. Um, and I was I bought an apartment in Manchester and I wasn't going to play anywhere else. So if there was a local team that would take me, fine. But I wasn't going to go to Birmingham or anywhere further afield to play. Um, the Jets had already kind of signed everyone because it was kind of like August, September when I came back. Um, so they kind of didn't have much leeway with the salary. Uh, cap, so uh, they offered to you know, me to play there and to bear with them because they're trying to free up some room to give me more money and things. So I ended up going down there, just commuting because um, it was only like 35, 40 minutes away. Um, and they had a fantastic group of players. Um, and yeah, we were looking to win the championship. And for, fortunately, that's what we did, yeah. It, it kind of feels like at this point, it was like you were almost willing to walk away like it was like you were looking for more financial security more financial stability and if if a team wasn't willing to pay you what you needed to be able to you know you've got your flat you've got your mortgage cover your bills um and be comfortable enough then you were gonna start looking at sort of other careers yeah definitely because that's what happened um, early in that season um after about four or five games when you know they didn't have the money that they promised um i walked away um I think it might have been after seven games. I think we were seven and oh, and and I walked away for about three weeks, and I, I just did a normal job because I was like, you know, if I'm not if I'm not getting paid a half decent salary, I'll go and just work and do it that way. So that that's what I did. But after three weeks, they they called me back, luckily, and then I stayed the rest of the season. <laughs> and your your brief stint in. Uh... Everton as well. I'd like to talk about kind of you had two was it two seasons two seasons in Everton. Um, obviously for yeah, the two, yeah. from the start of the program, like uh, you know, what are your memories of that sort of coming about? Um, and then I guess how how it all ended up playing out. Well, I was shocked to be honest because um, I was shocked to find out completely out of the blue. Um, speaker Henry Mooney one summer. Uh, in Toxteth, that oh yeah, the, um, Everton Football Club is going to start a BBL team, and I was like, really? He said, yeah, yeah. What is going to happen? And this was literally the same summer, and literally I think within a month or something like it, it was starting to happen. And he, I helped him recruit some players and things like that, and I've seen it come into fruition. I, I really couldn't believe it, to be honest with you. I, I just didn't believe that you know the last time that had happened was with when I was about fourteen uh, with Manchester United. Um, um, you know where where we we started back then, so it was fantastic that a football club came in. Um, really, really good situation. Where do you think it all ended up going wrong? Well, I think too much money being uh, paid to players and things like that. Um, not enough income coming in. Uh, the usual story: bills are too big. For Everton, you know, 
many uh, coaches, hiring of facilities, um, not bringing money in through the gate, not getting a bigger sponsor, things like that. Um, but it changed. It, we had two years at Everton, then it changed to Mersey Tigers. Um, I'd gone by Mersey Tigers, but they, they obviously won Everton. Um, had some really dominant years, but I'm not too sure exactly what happened with all that because I, I'd, I'd left by then. Yeah. I, I just know they won Everton the first year, maybe the second or third year. Uh, it got pulled out. Or I'm not sure exactly what happened. When it came to you sort of ending up ultimately making the decision to, to retire, um, you know, was that a difficult decision and how did you find that transition away from being a full-time professional basketball player? Um, so I played the first year, uh, was good. We, we was all right. I think we finished eight. Second year, we finished, I think, second. Um, we had, we had 10, I always tell people, we had 10 professional players. We had 10 professional players. There was like Tony Dorsey, myself, Olu Babalola, I think James Jones and a guy called Chuck Evans. We were all stars the year before in any team in any league we was on we was the five on the bench that's how strong our team was so we had 10 full-time professionals so that was the difference i think because most of the team didn't do that and everyone everyone was getting paid good money um and at the end of my second season um no tony garbalel just just said we're, we're just going to go younger um the next year and so you know you basically your services are required um as a player for the following season so i didn't try and go to another team in the BBL. I just wanted to stay in the same area. I think, okay, now it's time to, um, now it's time to do something else. I'll try and you know, slide into, um, you know, coaching or player coaching, different things like that. The next phase of my life. Did you find that, did you find that difficult or did you find it, okay? were you okay with it? Were you at peace with it? I was at peace with the playing thing because I knew I could play. I was probably honestly in, some of the best shape I'd been in in years because uh, Tony Garbalet was, you know, great coach. We had top class facilities. We were training three or four times a day, um, a lot more than the other teams in the BBR. So I was in fantastic shape. I think I was 35 at the time. I could have gone to another team and, and played. I had no doubt about that, but I didn't want to travel anymore. I just wanted to stay around, mm -hmm. you know, Manchester. So, um, that's why I was at peace with that decision. I was like, you know, just trying to make a living in the area with basketball, but you know that that's hard to do. There's not so many basketball jobs around, um, so it, it was tough for a few years. But you know, it's that transition period, isn't it? So yeah. And now, obviously, we kind of briefly spoke about it um, before we start recording. But you know, you've been coaching Liverpool uh, basketball club since 2016. Is it 2016? Four years. Four yeah. years. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and obviously you were doing you were doing coaching before that as well. How have you found uh, being a coach? Like when you you know when you compare it to being a player, and obviously being able to take those lessons and all the experience that you've had, and, and sort of translating it into um, guiding and directing other players. Um, you know, is it something that uh, do you think it's relative, come relatively easy to you? Uh, do you think that it's been more difficult than you've expected? Like, how, how have you found the the entire experience? Um, generally, I would say uh, I, I love it. Um, I, I love the coaching. Um, 
I just looked at what a lot of, of my former coaches did and, and did the opposite <laughs> to some extent with certain things. Um, I found it quite easy because, um, you know, as a player and I'm like a player's coach, definitely a player's coach. Um, I found it quite easy, really. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, and I get a lot of satisfaction from it. Um, I didn't ex I didn't expect to go into coaching. I didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a coach. I think I think it happened when I used to play. Um, I, I used to go to Laszlo's camps, Euro camps, as a player, and we had to. He asked us to coach, and and it was just gradually. I saw, okay, I have a little knack with this, and relate to the guys, and uh, understand the game, and how to relate to people and things. And it wasn't something that I set my mind on. Yes, I want to be a coach. It's just something I kind of fell into. Yeah. And then, and this season, obviously, Liverpool have chosen to take a sabbatical Division Two, right? Um, because of COVID, that was an option that Barcelona put on the table, and so it's a kind of is that does that mean it's a it's a year out for you? Yeah, but at the same venue, I run a, a basketball academy, uh, which is in the ABL, just below the EBL, the ABL. That's Archbishop so, Beck. Um, is it? I'll be yeah, Archbishop Beck. So I'll, I'll be doing that full time. So I'll still have my hand at coaching. Yeah, um, I'll just have my weekends free now. <laughs> I enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's always one of the it's one of the downsides, isn't it, when yeah. you're talking about uh yeah, the basketball in this country is the fact that you do you do have to end up uh, losing sacrificing your weekends and sort of social family time yeah. um for the game. Right, I'm aware, aware of time, so let's uh wrap up with some just some quicker uh, quick fire questions. Uh starting with um the best or best and favourite coach you ever played for. Oh, tough one, tough one. One is Curtis Xavier when I was young. Curtis Xavier. Um, Joe Welton in Germany. Best uh, British player that you've uh, played with or played against? Uh, Steve Butnell. What, what, um, do you, what do you think separates Steve? He's got a killer desire. Um, I think the main thing to me, what really separates it, is, is the fact for him to get to that level, I to get to North Carolina, playing a McDonald's high school uh, All-American game, to get to that level and to start and play, you know, at that level. Obviously, he's done a lot of great things in afterwards, but to get at that level coming from England, uh, that that's like top notch, top notch. I think I'm without I'm, being seven seven foot tall or anything like that, you know. Yeah. I think I might know the answer to this one, but uh regardless of irrespective of what they did at senior level, but the best uh, British junior player that you've ever seen. Uh, I think Yorick Williams um was absolutely tearing up, but I was away, but it, I would come back and hear all the stories. Uh, he was absolutely turned up. Um, apparently, uh, Mike Bernard. I just shout out to Big Mike there, but you know he was just an absolute beast, um, dunking on everybody uh, at, at my time uh, period. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and then now, now I will say, um, shout out to um, Cam Hildreth. Um, I don't even know if he's even a junior yet, but uh, he, he's something serious. That's all. Favourite uh, basketball teammate? 
Um, after passing that one, I, I can't. Yeah. Um, so. And then uh, your favourite memory, basketball memory. Um, probably Commonwealth Games, maybe the whole the whole thing about Commonwealth Games, the whole experience in Australia. Um, or maybe the shot for the significance of it, or even signing my first Division One, um, like my Division One scholarship. Probably, maybe even that day, because that was like a combination of all my dreams. Really, yeah. um, after signing dotted line, it was all coming true then. So, and then finally, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? When people talk about um, you as a player, uh, on and off the court, like how do you want to be remembered? Um, just that you know, I, I game. Um, I could play any position. I was tough. Um, um, good guy, decent, um, knowledgeable coach, um, and great teammate. Perfect. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for taking the time. It is much appreciated, and uh, I'm sure we will catch up again soon. Thanks a lot, Sam. Psst. Hey, podcast listener that you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it and uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.